Welcome to week number three of Your Curiosity is Your Velocity. It's how we grow personally, professionally, and definitely spiritually. Today, the title of the message is, I'm already a good person. And the focus here is, is that uniformity is a deformity. And here's my question I'd like to, like to put before you. Are you a diversity seeking person? Is that who you are? Okay. The least likely people in the United States of America to go to church are young professionals living in a major urban center. That's what DC is full of. And you know one of the top reasons why young professionals say they don't go to church? I'm already a good person. And you know what? That is exactly correct. It is correct. Because young professionals, according to all the studies I have seen, are far more altruistic and have a greater sense for justice than older generations. So you're right, you are already a good person. But today I want to talk about this. Why would a person who is already a good person, especially someone who is a good person, why would they want to go to church more? Why would they want to be a regular part of a church community? Would there be a reason why young professionals would definitely want to find themselves regularly in church. That's what we're going to talk about today. It's from Genesis chapter 2. And before I read Genesis chapter 2, I want to say this, because in diversity seeking, oh man, you're going to have some fireworks. You're going to have some conflict. Because when there's diversity, there are opposites. There's different perspectives. And Colossians 1.17 says something really important about Jesus. It says, he existed before all things and he holds everything together. Jesus holds everything together. We always want to look up to somebody. That's what we do. That's human nature. That's what we've done all throughout history. We look up to someone. Jesus is the one to look to when we're talking about holding things together, particularly diverse things together. You just look at this band of 12 around him. So diverse. They were definitely opponents with each other, but he held them together. Jesus held all kinds of different people together. So we want to think about Jesus, we want to fix our eyes on Jesus because he's our role model for diversity. And we're going to get more to that in just a moment, why that's so important. Now, we're studying the book of Genesis, and here's the reason why. Jesus Christ, most influential person that has ever lived, has caused so much good. I'm already a good person. Christ has caused so much good. And we've gone through this before, hospitals and orphanages and universities and compassion and justice and all these wonderful things that Jesus sparked. And even secular historians say something happened for the good. It definitely happened to the good because of Jesus Christ. So, so we got it. He sparked a lot of good. And when Jesus went to explain himself, this is important. In Luke 24, he's speaking to some of his disciples. And when he goes to explain who exactly he is and we can make sense of Jesus, he starts in Genesis. So thank you for doing this, for being a part of this. I'm convinced that, uh, Everyone will be inspired by your curiosity um, because the, the truth is everybody has questions. Like, did he take a rib from Adam and like build a whole nother human with it? Um, and just like, I don't know. And I just have a lot of questions um, that I'll probably never like, as other people were saying, like, I'll probably never figure it out or find out. Um, and you just have to like kind of accept that. So we're going to start in Genesis. Now, Genesis chapter two, if you read it like simply or superficially, you get it. It's the idea of 
there's disobedience, there's a loss of innocence, and there's consequences. But if you read it carefully and you read it curiously, you see something about human nature that is absolutely brilliant. And it tells us this, and this is something we really want to know. Why is there suffering? Why is there hope? Why is there suffering? And why is there hope? So let's read the account. Genesis chapter 2, pick it up in verse number 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Did you catch that switch? Heaven and earth, earth and heaven. Just notice how it flip-flopped it. So I'm going to get into this in a minute. There's two creation accounts in the book of Genesis, one in chapter 1, one in chapter 2. This is the second one, verse 5. No shrub had yet appeared on the earth. No plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. You know, um, there is a constant debate, particularly in the theological world, is is humanity basically good or basically bad? bad? I remember there was a huge megachurch a number of years ago out in California, and they had a Bible college choir come and sing. And one of the songs they were singing was Amazing Grace. There's a line in Amazing Grace, God who saved a wretch like me. And the pastor of that church said, oh, no, you're taking that line out because nobody's a wretch. And it set off like a mini firestorm in, in the theological world. And people were like, oh, no, we are wretches. Like, oh, no, we're good people. We're made in the image of God. Oh, no, we're terrible people. And all of this. And you know what? Genesis 2 just solves that problem. Just clearly clears it up. No longer a debate. It's like, yes. Yes what? Yes, you are. Both good and bad. Made of dirt and the divine breath of God. You have a dual nature. And that's why there's suffering, because sometimes we choose the dirt. And that's why there's so much hope. Because we choose the divine breath of God, we have a dual nature. That is why in Genesis chapter 1, when everything is called good, it's good, it's good, you come to humanity, there's no mention of good. Why? Because human beings are ambiguous. We can choose the dirt or we can choose the divine. It's up to you and I. We can make that choice. Let's move on. Verse number 8. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God caused all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. First negative words issued by God and all of scripture. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper an opponent, an opposite, suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. It's interesting here that God says, 
He notices, Adam doesn't notice their problem. He's like oblivious. He's oblivious of their problem. He's oblivious that there's a problem that he's alone. He's not crying. He's not like, what's wrong? I, I need help. He doesn't do any of that. God notices their problem and God says he needs an opposite. God says he needs an opponent, but then God doesn't do anything about it. God then steps in, creates all the animals and lets them name the animals. And then after that, why is that going on? Well, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But first I want to, I want to highlight all the contradictions. There's a bunch of contradictions between the first creation story and the second creation story. And I'm sure for those of you who've been reading the Bible, you've been in church a long time, you have seen those contradictions and they are so rich and deep. Let's just go through a couple of them, all right? In Genesis chapter one, the world, the earth is watery. In Genesis chapter two, it's dry. There's no rain. So it's watery and then it's dry in chapter two. In Genesis chapter one, you have the plants, the trees, the fish, the fowl, the animals, and then male and female are created simultaneously. Genesis chapter 2. It begins with the male. It begins with Adam. And then you get the plants and the trees and the animals. And all the way at the end of the road, there you have female. There you have Eve. Very different order of creation. Here's another one. In Genesis chapter 1, humanity is the master of life on earth. In Genesis chapter 2, servants of life on earth. Genesis chapter one, humanity is in the image of God. Genesis chapter two, humanity is made of both dirt and divine breath and only after their disobedience are they called godlike. Genesis chapter one, everything is good. Genesis chapter two, nothing is good. There's a tree of good and bad. Nothing is said to be good and being alone is said to be quote, God says, not good. Genesis chapter 1, humanity in need of a positive injunction is encouraged to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to rule and take dominion. Genesis chapter 2, humanity in need of restraint is given a negative command. Genesis chapter 1, God names and blesses. Genesis chapter 2, man names, God curses. Finally, Genesis chapter 1, human freedom is a gift and a unique distinction. Genesis chapter 2, human freedom is the source of our troubles. When read out of context, when read out of the cultural setting that this happened in, when we don't consider the literature of Jesus and Jerusalem, when read through the lens of Athens and Aristotle, what you have is one big problem and a lot of seminary classes. Oh my goodness, I sat through so many tests, so many lectures in seminary about what is going on here. We have multiple, right? We have multiple stories of creation and they're in conflict with each other. So what's the answer? Well, couple of, uh, couple of observations here. And before I move on, I simply want to plug a sermon that we have on our website, on our YouTube channel. It's called Start Here. It's a really important place to start to get in the right framework. If you have not heard it, please make sure you listen to it because it talks about the literature of Jerusalem and the literature of Athens and how they're very, very different. I also make another observation here, and that is is that you, you have people who refuse to take the Bible and its biblical cultural, historical context. Now, I know that even some church people have said to me, I don't, you know, I want to take it in my context. And I just, as a way of observation, I want to gently say this. Some of the most famous discounters of the Bible today, some of the most famous atheists 
that are around refuse, they also refuse to take it in its historical cultural context. Richard Dawkins, Reza Aslan, who is a denier of Jesus, Bart Ehrman, who is a denier of Jesus's divinity, they also say, no, no, we're not going to take it in its historical cultural context. No, no, we have to read it right through the lens of today in our Western world. So if you're struggling with that, I just want to offer you, that was a big surprise to me when I realized it, when I was grappling with this years ago, is that those who are like, I'm not in the same camp as them, but I have put myself in the same camp if I refuse to take into consideration the literature of Jerusalem and Jesus and the historical cultural context. Now, there's three reactions to the conflict that I have seen, three popular ones of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Why are they in conflict? Well, seminary. The JEDP sources that there are numerous different sources. This came up in 19th century Germany that theologians said there were numerous sources and the editor of the Bible just kind of threw all these different sources together. And some say they're giving you a different viewpoint and others will say, oh no, it's just kind of a mess. And so there's a a lot of classes in seminary that we discuss and we discuss and we discuss about all of these sources and what's going on and why are they in conflict to each other. So that's one popular way to look at it. Here's a second popular way. Just ignore it. <laughs> just say, okay, I'm just going to choose not to see the conflicts there. But if you do that, you miss the deeper thing. Here's the third way. Here's the way that I'm suggesting that maybe you want to consider this is that what this gives us between Genesis 1 and 2 is that these contradictions are the dual nature of humanity. And it's the reason why we have so much suffering. But it's also the reason why there is so much hope is because there is dirt and there's divine breath. And what it basically says to us is there is suffering in the world and there's something you can do about it right here, right now. Now, that would be a great seminary class. I never had that seminary class, but that's what Genesis 2 is showing us. It's showing us what the problem is and it's showing us what the solution is. How can we do something about that? Now, Anne Frank says this. How wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 2 clearly shows what the problem is, why they're suffering, human freedom, and how we can choose to make a difference in this world. I'm just suggesting that we need to have more seminary classes about that because Genesis chapter 2 makes that super clear. Well, we have to look at it in ancient Jewish eyes in a proper context, and then it just makes so much sense. It's talking to us about things that have never, ever changed. Now, <clears throat> I uh, have been getting a lot of questions. We've been having some great questions. And something that's been come up over the years that I've heard as I've talked about similar um, ideas that I'm talking to you today and in, in the midst of this series as well is, well, wait a minute. You know, are you suggesting that I have to like read commentaries and ancient writings and I have to discuss with other people because in American Christianity, and this, this is me, this is what I've been comfortable with, this is what I grew up with, okay, is that I just need the Bible and the Holy Spirit and I can figure everything out. I just need the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And you know what? That is a, that's a beautiful thought. Just me basically sitting with my Bible and me relying on the Holy Spirit just to figure it all out is so great. If it was just biblical, it would be awesome, but it's anti-biblical, okay? Because God says it's not good to be alone. You need other people. You need other perspectives. You need diversity. You need an opposite. You need an opponent. As the Bible says, iron sharpens iron. You need other people 
Two are better than one and three are better still. These things are really important. That's why we have community groups to discuss. That's why, like a minute ago, I mentioned the Q&A. That's where the real meat of stuff is happening. Oh, man, we've had such great Q&As because you need that. Like Jesus had his band at 12. And what did they do? They got together and they talked and they discussed and they went into the depths of the word. They didn't, you see, in the, in the Bible, discipleship is not about our spiritual growth by one person sitting with the Bible open and relying on the spirit. No, you need absolutely, and God's word makes it so clear, you have to have other people around you. That is the model of how you grow spiritually. And you don't read the Bible, actually. You study the Bible. And some people say to me, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying I have to study? I have to study so hard? I mean, gosh, why should God be so difficult? Shouldn't be so far easier to understand. Clearly in the Bible, there is a responsibility to pass down learning. It's a human responsibility. I need you to pass it down. The famous verses in Deuteronomy, when you are with your children, when you're sitting down and when you're standing up, when you're walking out and you're walking in, whatever, along the road, getting ready to go to sleep, talk, 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 teach, 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 teach. They put a high, such a high biblical premium on being ready, always ready to give an answer. And that's deep learning. Hey, the scholar scholars of the bible like during Jesus's day the religious the religious scholars they had memorized the first 5 books of the bible genesis through deuteronomy that's a pretty high premium well, listen you and i today if we had to go for surgery would you want a, a surgeon it's like how many surgeries have you done hey, who did you study with where did you go to medical school oh no no i just got a i just got a book about surgery and i just sat and i prayed and i read it and so now let's cut you open you would never do that well god is far more important than surgery because god can change and has changed our world and that's how important it is very very important okay so it's not just me and the Bible. I need other people and we have to learn and pass that knowledge down. Again, that's why community groups are so important. So Genesis chapter two, verse number 18 says, it's not good to be alone. Well, here's some questions. Who is it not good for? Is it not good for Adam? Is it not good for humanity? Is it not good for God? Who is it not good for? Okay, and what? Maybe we get a clue here. What exactly is aloneness? Now, we can think of being alone as being a weakness or being needy. I need help. You can think of it as a weakness, but we don't see Adam here crying. He's not like, oh, I'm just, I'm so lonely. I feel so, I, I need help. We don't see him being needy. We don't see him reaching out. We don't see him giving voice to that. He seems to be completely oblivious. God is the one who recognizes that something is not good. So God sees something that is not good. And how does God remedy the situation? It says God makes a helper. What is the word helper? The word helper is an opposite, an opponent, a counterpart. He needs somebody diverse from him. Who would be, who like him, but opposite from him, has a very different perspective. Here's the thing. Are we drawn to, are we diversity seeking people? I know we say, particularly in Washington, D.C., that we love diversity. That's great. That's a great statement to make. But do we actually seek out diversity in your life? Do you have true, genuine, deep conversations with people who are genuinely diverse from you, who have a radically different perspective from you? So God says this is important because uniformity is a deformity. 
And this is going to be a problem in God's opinion. Adam doesn't realize it. He's oblivious to it. And we are oblivious to the fact that we tend to have this incredibly strong, powerful pull towards uniformity. Now, we're going to see this when eventually we get to the Tower of Babel. When you look at that, just one little thing about the Tower of Babel. This is total, this is like creating a totalitarian state. It's all about imposed uniformity. It says they didn't want to make it with stone. They made with brick. Now, what's the deal with stone? Stones are all different. It's natural. stone. Brick is something that we create. And if it doesn't totally fit that uniform identical pattern, the bricks, we toss it out and throw it away. So they weren't building with stones, diversity. They were building with bricks, total uniformity. And God says, that is not good. That's going to lead to a terrible problem. And so here in Genesis chapter two, same thing. God says, he doesn't see it, but it's a problem. I'm going to ask you, do you see it? Are you intentionally, I know we all say we love diversity, but are you intentionally seeking out, listening to, listening to understand, not listening to respond, people who have a different viewpoint than you? The church is the place to do that. I'm going to get back to that in just a moment. Adam totally lacks self-awareness. So once the woman, once Eve is created, he names her. And after he names her, he names himself. He just had a generic name to that point, but now he names himself. Why? Because when you're before the other person, you become self-aware. Now, you become self-aware of your own limitations or your own imperfections, but you become more aware of who you are. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes we think it's terrible. But we need the perspective of other people to highlight those blind spots that we have. And God sees that and says, in order for this planet to function in a healthy way, we must have diversity. And yet human beings, human nature, all throughout history, have had this gravitational pull towards uniformity. Leadership conference. I've gone to church leadership conferences for more than 20 years. One of the most popular things that I hear leaders say over and over and over again from a stage and pastors break out in huge applause. They will say, they'll tell stories about how they have said to their congregation, if you guys don't believe in our vision, if you don't believe in our mission, if you're not with us, then just leave. And the pastor will say, 500 people left that church. And the pastors will just clap because you got those 500 out. But all of a sudden, this is what the story is, the church just took off like a rocket with success because now you put a uniformity there. And I want to say that's exciting if you want to grow fast. You want to grow fast, get a bunch of people who are alike together. But if you want to grow biblically, get a bunch of people together who aren't anything alike, where there's diversity. So I want to say to you, if you feel like... There's diversity in this community. If you feel like you have a different perspective, I don't want to say leave. I want to say stay. If you're confused about our mission to be a church for people who don't go to church, stay, ask. We want to learn from you. We want to listen. You know what? Years ago, uh, I would say in my conversations with somebody who is an atheist, I really wouldn't have much to say because I just wasn't in that world at all. I had never spent any time. And then I did some learning. I thought about, you know, an atheist perspective and I thought, okay, now I've got some stuff to say and we'll engage in conversation. I want to actually teach you. Mr. or Mrs. Atheist, some things you should think about. But you know what? I have now progressed beyond that. And now I say when I am in a conversation with a person who is an atheist, 
I really want to learn from you. I have no idea if you're going to learn from me, Mr. and Mrs. Atheist, but I know that I am going to learn from you. My favorite book back in 2019 was written by an atheist because he gave me so much insight into who Jesus Christ is from his perspective was absolutely awesome. We need diversity. God says we need it. We need other opinions, but we're drawn, drawn towards uniformity. And God says out of his own mouth, not Adam, that that uniformity is a deformity. We need to listen and we need to listen to understand, not listen to respond. We have far too much of gotcha stuff that are going on. Now let's check this out. God says, hey, Adam, you need an opponent. You need an opposite. So Adam names all the animals, right? He names he names all the animals. But he can't have a conversation with them. He needs to have a conversation. He needs to have a meeting of the minds in order for the world to be the kind of place God wants it. He needs to have a meeting of the minds. And so God creates Eve, the opposite, the opponent. And you know what? They never have a conversation. They never have a meeting of the minds. They never have a conversation, never talk. Now, he talks about her, but he never talks to her. And neither here nor anywhere in the Bible do the two opposites meet. Do the two opposites ever, ever, ever have a conversation? They never talk things out. You never see a conversation between the two of them. But what you do see is the very first conversation that happens in all of scripture is right after this, the beginning of Genesis chapter three, when Eve in need of conversation talks to the snake. I just think that is quite interesting, but we can't get into that right now. All right. Now let's go back to young professionals. I'm already a good person. Why should I go to church? Okay, great. You are a good person. We've already established that. More altruistic. You have a greater sense of justice. Very good. But I just want to give you three things to think about, and they're really important. Okay. In order for our world to really be good, we need to be people who seek diversity. Very intentional. Doesn't happen on its own. We have to be intentional about it. And the church is the most diverse institution in the history of the world. Three main centers of the Christian church today. I'm talking large. Church is all global. It's global around the world. But the three big centers are Africa, South America, China. It's very diverse. And all throughout its history, it's been very diverse. Jesus chose a band of 12 followers that were opponents to each other. And he held them together. Colossians 1.17. He holds everything together because we're focused on him. And in the early church... We're told that people came together that would outside the church never get together. They were rich and poor. They were young and old. They were Jew and Gentile. The book of Revelation in the Bible says that every language, every culture, that Jesus Christ brings people together. And it is so true. We're so diverse. In order for our world to be good, that we need then to seek out in a very intentional way diversity. And the church is the way to do it because there's no more diverse institution in the history world than the church. Here's the second thing. Another data point to think about. The church is where we do the most good. Harvard professor Robert Putnam in American Grace did a study on this. And he found, yes, there's good people everywhere, but where are people actually doing the most good, doing the good? So everybody basically thinks they're a good person. Do you know that? I mean, you know, people just think they're a good person. That's, that's who we are. But where do people actually do the good? Because I can say I'm a good person, but am I a good person unless I'm intentionally, consistently doing good? Because good does good. And when you go to church, what is found, according to Harvard professor Putnam, the data shows that people in church are actually doing far more good 
Outside of the church, people say, I'm a good person. They're just not doing a lot of the good. But in the church, there's a doing in the community, locally, globally, actually making a difference. At Grace, a few weeks ago, we packed 6,000 pounds of fresh produce. We do all kinds of mentoring. We help with rent assistance. We're doing stuff all around the world. We're doing stuff here locally. We are doing good. And we come together, a church, a diverse community of people coming together to do good. Can you truly be a good person unless you're doing good? Good people don't want to do minimal good, limited good. They actually want to do good as much as possible. And the church, according to Harvard, is the place to do the most good. So join the church, third and final point. We need you. You are a good person. We need you to come together with us because we need you. We need your ideas. We need your diversity. We need your energy to make a difference in this community, to come together and say, what good can we do in the lives of other people all around us, locally, globally? We need you. So for those three reasons, please consider. We know you're a good person. But in order for our world to become better and for us to actually be good, we have to do good. And we have to come together to do just that. Okay, we're going to end with something really important today. We're going to end with communion. So I've got some bread. I've got something to drink. I would encourage you to do the same. I want to talk about specifically today diversity in communion. Diversity. Now, as I've been saying throughout this message, Colossians 1.17, Jesus Christ holds everything together. He held his opponents together, his 12 disciples. And we really see this big time. In the Lord's Supper, in that communion service in the upper room, he is there with his disciples and he has in the seat of honor right next to him, his betrayer. What bigger of opponent can you get than that than Judas, who is seated right next to him? Christ invites him to the communion table, to the Passover table, his opponent who was going to run out of that meal and betray Jesus Christ. And yet he's invited because hopefully Judas will allow the love and the goodness and the holiness of Jesus Christ to change his life. He's invited to that meal. Far too often in churches, we think about when we get to the place of communion, that there has to be complete uniformity, that, it, that, that, that the gates aren't open wide for everybody to come and to experience the abundance of the love of God. And sometimes we say, and I'm not, I'm not coming down on this, I just, as a way of observation, want to say, in the Bible, it is a meal and everybody is welcomed to that meal. And sometimes in church we say, oh, no, no, unless you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you can't experience this meal. Would Jesus had a betrayer in the seat of honor at that meal, at the Lord's Supper, at communion. Now let's go back to the original communion, to the original Passover in Egypt, where everybody, all the Israelites participate. Were they uniform? Did they all have the type of faith that they needed to have? Or were they allowed to experience that first Passover, that first communion from a wide variety, from a broad diversity? Well, they were very broad because these are the same people who just a few months later made a golden calf, got drunk and naked and worshiped that calf, which represented money, sex and power. And yet God invites all of them to that table to experience maybe 
the incredible, transformative, abundant love and holiness of Almighty God. God invites us. It would be out of context of the Bible to have a meal and not to invite everybody to participate in that transformative meal. So with that in mind, think about communion, that Jesus Christ is holding us together. And as you take communion today, or maybe as you just observe because you're not comfortable yet, I want you to think that God loves you no matter what, and he desires you to seek his way and to accept his way into your life. It's a very important moment, very important. Now, we are told that the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed by his opponent, that he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my life, my very blood that I am going to shed for you. Let's pray over the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup, and then us eat and drink together. Almighty God, I thank you so much that you love us so much that you even invite Judas to be at your table. You even invite those who will turn their backs on you so quickly after you delivered them from oppression to bow down to a golden calf. God, your love is astounding. Thank you, God, that we can participate in the abundance of this meal together and may your overwhelming goodness, holiness, and love penetrate our hearts no matter how hard they might be. May they be overcome by your love. Bless the eating of this bread and the drinking of this cup in Christ's holy name. Amen. Let us eat and drink together. Thank you so much for joining us today. As I've said throughout this message, it is so important. I want to encourage you in order for us to be all that we can be, we need to be very intentionally diversity seeking individuals, have conversations where we listen to understand from those who are opposite of us. We've got to do this. So thank you for being a part of this today. We're praying for you and we'll see you next week.